You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. The inside word on all things travel. Buckle up as we explore New Zealand, take you abroad, dive into virtual travel, and inspire your bucket list with spectacular tips and tricks. We've got the world covered. Tune in on Apple's podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to like and share our podcast so everyone can enjoy the inside word on all things travel. And now, here's your host from Christchurch, New Zealand, Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch. Welcome aboard to another fresh edition, a new edition of Kiwi Tripsters. I'm Chris Lynch. I'm Mike Yardley. Great to be with you. It is. Let's uh, take you south across the Canterbury border, let's pretend there was one, into Otago and the Waitakere District. The Waitaki District, yes, very much the Waitaki River is essentially the border between Canterbury and Otago. And I reckon when you cross that river, it's like a pathway into another world because before you head down the road to Omaru, I like to head west into the Waitaki Valley to Duntroon, which is a little village and it's where you can get a beginner's guide to all the buzz about the district's geopark. Now, a bit like the Dark Sky Reserve in Mackenzie, mm. the Waitaki district is currently waiting for UNESCO designation as an international geopark, and it would be the first one in Australasia. And essentially it's because they've got so many incredible geological formations across their district, which are essentially a throwback to the days of Gondwana. So we're talking, you know, 25 million years ago or so, when the Waitaki district was actually underwater. So we were Zealandia at that stage. We drifted away from Gondwana. And where the Waitaki district today is, all of that land was actually um, seabed. It was all underwater. I thought you were going to say geothermal there for a second, yeah. but you wouldn't realise um, how special it is until somebody probably points it out, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, but the amazing thing is that there are so many incredible fossils all through the Waitaki landscape, such a rich cultural history as well. And a really good place to start off is Duntroon because they are home to the Vanished World Fossil Centre. Um, and as much as it can be quite hard to get all of this ancient history into your head, Chris, I had to give it quite a lot of time to, you know, work my way through it. The really good thing about that centre is it does give you a really easy to comprehend overview into the ancient world of Waitaki and how over time uh, the land rose up, mainly through seismic forces, and all of the fossilised material was essentially... Uh, the result of uh, ancient marine life breaking down. So the limestone that the Waitaki district is so famous for, all of that limestone is just fossilised ancient marine life. And the amazing thing is farmers in the Waitaki district um, will often find ancient penguin bones within the limestone of those cliffs uh, all around the Waitaki. So, yeah, it's a really interesting sort of terrain. There is also a, a fossil centre as such, isn't there? Yeah. So this is the Vanished World Fossil Centre. So it is the place to really get to grips with sort of the bare bones geological backstory. And from there, after you've checked out their exhibits, um, there are about 40 
designated sites of significance across the Waitaki district that comprise this geopark. Okay, did you tour those? Yeah, some of them. Um, I was short on time, so we sort of handpicked a few uh, choice uh, specimens very close to Duntroon, and this is the reason why the fossil centre is based at Duntroon. About five minutes' drive from there, there are two fabulous um, locations. One is called Anatini, and ancient whale bones have been exposed in the limestone at Anatini. And you might also recognise the setting of Anatini as Aslan's camp from Narnia. It was shot on location at Anatini. Um, and the other one, very close by, uh, probably my favourite actually, is called Elephant Rocks. And it's this wonderfully whimsical affair where you've got these towering limestone rocks that have been sculpted and eroded by wind and water to form all sorts of sort of Dr. Zeus-like shapes. Some of them do look like elephants. Um, and also nearby Duntroon, uh, just a reminder about um, ancient Maori travelling through the Waitaki Valley and how they used the limestone rock faces essentially as a canvas. So you can see a lot of the ancient rock art on those rock faces, just adjacent to uh, the state highway through the valley. There's also the Muraki boulders, which is a must-see for me. I love these. Yeah, that's probably the most famous site that um, is part of this uh, aspiring geopark. Um, and they are, they are sort of um, bewitching, aren't they? They look like someone's like just placed them there for added effect. Just dumped. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another really popular one uh, at the, uh, what would you say, the western end of the Waitaki Valley is close to Omaruma, the Pinnacled Clay Cliffs. And they're a striking sight as well. But what really amazed me, Chris, is after touring around the fossil centre at Duntroon, and, and speaking to some of the local guides there, as you start wandering through the Waitaki district, um, you'll notice all sorts of other really interesting uh, formations in the terrain of the Waitaki. Suddenly you'll start to notice how there are volcanic cones in the Kakanui Mountains. And in fact, Omaru itself is based on an ancient uh, volcanic cone. So yeah, it certainly um, makes sense to me why they think this is such a compelling case for geopark status. You're with Kiwi Tripsters. We've been discussing the geological wonders strung across the Wataki uh, district. How does, Mike, the geopark uh, kind of interact with the Oamaru story? Well, this is really fascinating in itself, Chris, because after you've looked at the geological formations across the district, you realise there are so many interlinking strands that weave the geopark story together with uh, the great town of Oamaru, the past and the present, like, as I mentioned before, how farmers taming the land first unearthed a lot of these limestone fossils, uh, the bountiful produce from the farms that powered the development of Omaru's port, how all of that wonderful limestone has uh, created that glittering collection of neoclassical buildings that anchor uh, the town's Victorian precinct, uh, and also the fact that you know, you'll find ancient penguin bones in the limestone, which powerfully connects with Omaru's magnificent colony 
of little blue penguins on their foreshore today. There are also other ancient fossils around, such as yourself, because you started your broadcasting career, didn't you? Sorry about this. In Oamaru, didn't you? Well, that So was... if you went back then, you, 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 you could enter the Museum of Ancient History, couldn't you? Well, I sometimes feel like a dinosaur. That was brutal but fair, Chris. <laughs> Sorry, brutal but fair. Uh, so what, what was I right? Was that 1993? Yeah. I thought you were going to say 1959. Yeah. When I first started in radio... Uh, in Omaru, it was 1993. At that stage, the colony, the penguin colony, was just sort of powering up. It was a fledgling visitor attraction, nothing what it is like now. So back in 93, there were 30 breeding pairs. When I was back at the penguin colony a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were over 200 breeding pairs. So that nightly penguin parade of the birds returning home at twilight to their nest after feeding at sea is just the most extravagant catwalk mm. sort of show. Um, and it's such an intimate affair. The way that they've set up the little mini grandstands around the colony, you can virtually reach out and touch these uh, penguins. Not that you would, but they are that close as they scamper up the rocks. They are very entertaining. They are like nervous Nigels. And something which I hadn't noticed before at the colony is there are some fur seals that have decided that they'd like to take up residence uh, on the rocks of the colony, of the penguin colony. So poor little Mr. Penguin, when he comes back from sea to see wifey waiting for him at home, has to scamper up these rocks and navigate his way around these horrendously large bellowing fur seals. So then they'll sort of scamper back to sea after getting stage fright. So that in itself is quite an entertaining show. The amazing thing, though, Chris, is right next to the penguin colony, there is this really old, historic, curving wharf called Sumter Wharf, and it actually played a very big role in the uh, pioneering days of refrigerated meat being exported to Britain from New Zealand. Nowadays, that old wharf has been completely hijacked by what is now the world's biggest population of Otago shacks. So they decided for whatever reason, as nature does, this wharf would be a great place to, you know, give birth to um, shag chicks. So it's now just this huge big shagathon on Sumter <laughs> Wharf. Thousands of them. It's the most amazing sight. There's actually some good eats in the town of Oamaru, isn't there? Yeah, they've always been really proud of their culinary credentials. And I have to say that after freezing your butt off watching penguins in the depths of winter uh, in Omaru, just two minutes away, hot-footed around to Scott's Brewery on the foreshore, it is such a cool place. They've got a roaring fire, really good craft beer, and fabulous pub food. If you want to go really top-notch, uh, people go gaga over a place called Cucina and they are fawned over for their degustation dining. It's sort of a South American-inspired menu but very hyper-local when it comes to seasonality and local produce. And then just north of Omaru, Riverstone Kitchen, which sits alongside uh, that massive emporium, Riverstone Country Gift Shops, uh, and the latest edition, the Riverstone Castle. Yeah, the kitchen itself is just so popular for their cuisine. Uh, and Bevan Smith, his parents are the ones who have built the castle, the Riverstone Castle. Bevan's like an award-winning chef, and he established the Riverstone Kitchen uh, about 14 years ago. Um, his food ethos is just 
awesome. It's all powered by sustainability, all about hyperlocal produce. A lot of it's grown on site around the, you know, around the grounds. Um, and I had the most amazing wild mushroom risotto for lunch, which would be one of the best restaurant lunch um, dishes I have had in my life. It was so good. Would they be reliant on the tourists coming through? or Because the town of Wamaru yeah. is quite small, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, the good thing is they have a lot of locals that will go to Riverstone Kitchen as just like, you know, their local as a, as a place to go for like Sunday lunch or whatever. But a lot of New Zealanders, when they're travelling, like self-driving, say from Christchurch to Omaru, Riverstone Kitchen is right on the highway just before you enter Omaru Town proper. So a huge number of domestic tourists know it, love it, and always stop into Riverstone. So they seem to be doing really well. That's yeah. good to hear. May, may it well be successful. You yeah. Know? Um, now, you know what I'm going to ask about the luxury stay. I, I saw you stayed somewhere pretty fancy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I When I was living in Omaru back in the 90s, uh, when I was a dinosaur, or a young dinosaur, in uh, my previous prehistoric age, um, I never knew about this place. But Pennybrin Lodge is up on South Hill. It's about five minutes' drive from the Penguin Colony, for example, and it's the most extraordinary luxury lodge. It just oozes old-school grandeur. It was built back in 1889. Pennybrin, by the way, is Welsh for top of the hill, so... Um, very suitably named, but it's the most opulent Victorian residence. And it's believed to be the the biggest single-storey dwelling in Australasia. It is just massive in the furnishings, the carpets, the, the period pieces. You really do feel like you have gone into some sort of like aristocratic rabbit hole you know it's just so amazing um, and they are doing a really cool deal at the moment uh, for New Zealanders whereby you can name your price I to like stay there many people are doing this now I think it's a yeah. good idea now I know I won't say I'm not allowed to say but I know what they will accept as their minimum and I can assure you it is absolutely reasonable. Okay. So if you do want to name your price to spend a couple of nights at Penny Britain Lodge, what I would suggest you do is think about what's, what, what's say, an average nightly rate for a decent motel. Okay. And you'll be in the right ballpark for the most sensationally priced deal at Penny Britain Lodge. Okay. How many guest rooms are there? There's only five. Five guest suites. Wow. So, yeah, it's a very- Really is luxurious. Elegant, yeah, low-key affair. You do actually feel like you've got run of the house. And um, they have just got the most amazing features wherever you go wandering around the house. For example, they've got this billiards table, right, that is one of the biggest billiards tables I've ever seen. It was actually earmarked for the New Zealand Parliament- so Parliament apparently had ordered up three billiards tables back in the 1920s, but they realised they only had room for two. So this third billiards table that was earmarked for our parliamentarians has actually ended up at Pennybrin Lodge. Um, there's an 1866 baby grand piano. Um, there's just, in like the library, the conservatory, the drawing room. They're fit for royalty, these mm. rooms. They are just so gorgeous. This is very much you, isn't it? You like this type of Oh, I'm, I just felt interior. like the Lord of the Manor. I loved yeah. it. It's just absolutely the ultimate in domestic travel escapism. Nicely said. Well, you've, you've sold it to me. I'm keen now. Name your price, Chris. I might have to. <laughs> Coming up, we'll give you some ideas on the Great Wellington Weekender, and we will indulge in some armchair travel to British Columbia. 
You're with Kiwi Tripsters. Just ahead, we'll take you on a bit of a ticky tour of the capital of New Zealand, Wellington, for some winter escape ideas. Make sure you've got your head on tight. But let's in, uh, indulge in some armchair travel to British Columbia on the Sea to Sky Highway. Uh, Mike, you've done this. How long's the journey from Vancouver to Whistler? It's only a 90-minute jaunt from Vancouver to reach Whistler, but it is the most spectacular drive. You know how much I love my roadies, Chris. This really is one of the world's great short self-drives. So you head out from Lionsgate Bridge in Vancouver, and the drive is actually a lot easier than it used to be because you may recall Whistler played host to the uh, Winter Games some years ago, and as part of that, they had to upgrade this Cedar Sky Highway because it previously had such a high fatality uh, rate, and the IOC weren't very impressed by that. Um, So, yeah, it's only a 90-minute drive, but it's a deliriously scenic drive, brimming with temptations along the way. Sounds very good. Some of the best stops? Well, for much of the drive, you're actually wedged between mountains and water. Uh, How Sound, which is a big glacial ford. Porto Cove is a really nice stop on the side of the sound, so you can soak up all of that fjord splendour. And then there's some really cool waterfront communities which are fun to explore. Places like Horseshoe Bay, uh, Britannia Beach and Lions Bay. And the section of highway above the homes of Lions Bay is really interesting in itself. I found out that they've actually got special rubber surfacing on the road, on the highway, so that the lovelies who live in Lions Bay um, aren't bothered by noise pollution from the constant traffic flow from the highway. That's very British Columbia, you know, to add a little bit of rubber to your road surface. Okay, you've got some other highlights too. Uh, yes, yeah, Squamish. On Squamish? The, yeah, I love that name, Squamish. Uh, on the approach to Squamish, there is this gigantic rocky fang that sort of looms above the highway. It actually looks a bit like the Rock of Dr- Gibraltar. Um, but it's called Star Wamis Chief, and it's one of the world's biggest granite monoliths. And the real thrill is to watch the army of rock climbers tenuously crawling up at 700 metre height, you know, of the vertical rock face. Um, and then right next door, you've got this colossal curtain of water, the Shannon Falls, and the Sea to Sky Gondola. So you can soak up all of these gob-stopping scenic attractions uh, in Squamish. It's a great stop. Sounds very nice. And I understand the Salmon Run is a pretty popular spectacle. Yeah, depending on when you are going, um, the Salmon Run is something that is um, absolutely wildly popular in the Pacific Northwest. And for about three months, uh, you can watch... Uh, thousands of bald eagles from all over the Pacific Northwest feasting on dead fish. Um, (laughs) And before they hibernate, you can also see black bears literally plucking these salmon straight out of the river. Um, And this mass spectacle of the fish returning to their birthplace is so immense that salmon DNA has even been detected in the trees uh, in Brackendale where this great salmon run takes place. It's just north of Squamish. But yeah, um, nature unplugged. Very much so. What's so good about Whistler, by the way? 
It's kind of like British Columbia's Queenstown, um, a world-class recreation mecca. So it's got year-round pulling power. The winter wonderland scenes are straight out of a Christmas card if you happen to be there at Christmas uh, in Whistler. And then in summer, it's all about biking and hiking. Uh, but yeah, they've got these two monstrous mountain ranges, Whistler and Blackcomb, and uh, that's where the, the Winter Olympics were held. Um, but yeah, you know, if you're into your skiing or your snowboarding, um, a lot of New Zealanders uh, who work on our ski fields at the moment, um, before COVID, would then in our off-season, our summer, would go over to Whistler to work on, on their slope. So yeah, you'll see a lot of similarities between the New Zealand outdoorsy, uh, outdoorsy scene and that in Whistler. Can you travel peak to peak? I actually think this is probably the best thing to do in Whistler. You can. I have a serious fetish for funiculars and gondolas, and the peak-to-peak gondola is the granddaddy of them all. It is a high-wire extravaganza. It slings you across the mountaintops from Whistler to Blackcomb. To put this into context, just imagine you had two Remarkables in Queenstown, right? Sort of on either side of the lake. One Remarkables and then bookended by another and then slang a whole lot of sky-high gondolas between the two. That's kind of like what it um, feels like on the peak-to-peak in Whistler. Infinity alpine views and there's various engineering world records thrown in given the height and the reach of uh, these gondolas. It really is a knockout. What about uh, the mountain biking scene? It's pretty big there too, isn't it? Oh, just mega. Uh, Yeah, and the Whistler Bike Park is a blockbuster with more terrain than any other North American bike park. So you've got so many different trails, chairlifts galore to zip you up to the top of those trails. Um, But even if you're a beginner or a novice and just want to give it a crack, super easy, uh, guides galore to make sure you have a wild time. So hopefully once the borders uh, start to relax, Come 2021, uh, you can zip yourself to Whistler in British Columbia. Finally, on this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, which I'm really enjoying, by the way, Mike, you've been everywhere and you're making me feel like I want to go all, to all these places now. Um, but can you do the same with Windy Wellington? Because um, <laughs> I've been thinking about sort of a weekend away. If I go on a weekend away domestically, last yes. time it was Queenstown. I've done, well, I haven't done Auckland for a while, but I've never thought of doing the whole um, Wellington thing unless there's a very specific event on. So right. can you change my mind? I could easily fill a weekend in for you in Wellington, Chris. There is so much to do. And quite frankly, when the borders open, you're going to be flinging yourself at the world uh, with gay abandon, it has to be said. But in Wellington, I'll tell you what, I reckon the best way to explore Wellington Mm. is by e-bike. I lost my e-bike virginity last month. E-bike? No. And I I know I've been very slow to the cause here of e-bikes, but I hadn't been on one until I went to the capital a few weeks ago. But for Wellington, they're just so tailor-made because quite often you'll have a you know a stiff headwind in Wellington um, to have to negotiate in a lot of steep streets. Mm. And when you flick the power mode into turbo on your e-bike, boom, it just cuts you through all this. of that. You were saying this. There's a turbo menu on your e-bike. I was quite addicted to it. Okay. And even on the flat, I just stayed in turbo just to be a complete sloth on my bike. 
but um, they're quite zippy. I mean, they can actually get up to quite a good speed. But it doesn't really feel like you're doing exercise, though, does it? No, it doesn't. you're cheating. No, that, that, that is true. There is a little bit of cheating to it, but um, such an easy, effortless way to get around town. I actually went around the bays from the waterfront all the way around to Evans Bay Parade, where I used to have a flat back in the 90s, just a few years after being um, a fossil in Omaru. And... Um, then I went further to like Miramar and Seatoon. And the thing that really amazed me about e-bikes is you can go so far in such a short space of time. And it's not until you actually get there you think, holy henna, look how far I've yeah. come. Yeah. That's they are cool. brilliant. Perfect for Wellington. I've been on an e-bike in Hamner Springs through the forest there and I was getting a bit of a ticky tour of the forest. Yeah. And I felt guilty because I was with two blokes and they went on, you know, they were, they were doing it the real way. Yeah. And I'd got the e-bike out and they were, you know, sweating and huffing and puffing at the end. And I was like, oh yeah, next. <laughs> anyway, uh, obviously you would have visited the National Museum. Yes, I had to call into Te Papa. A um, couple of things, just uh, a few updates on Te Papa. If you have been meaning to go there to see Gallipoli, the scale of our war, which is the most incredible exhibition, it is still on. They have extended it through until 2022. They'll probably extend it beyond that because this thing is such a runaway success story. At last count, nearly three million people have been through this exhibition, which first opened in 2014. It was only meant to be on for five years, and it just is just keeps on keeping on. Um, it is amazing. Um, by the way, something new that um, has been rolled out at Te Papa is their new National Art Gallery called Toy Art. And what really intrigued me there is this painting by a fella called William Hodges, who was actually aboard Captain Cook's ship Resolution in Dusky Sound in 1773. And he painted this beautiful work called Waterfall in Dusky Bay, which depicts um, a lovely waterfall in Dusky while local Māori are seated in a waka. So it was very much what he saw from the ship, Resolution. And the amazing thing is, you know, in this darn age when it's become fashionable to bash the likes of Captain mm, Cook. Cancel, cancel. Yes, exactly, the whole cancel culture. Cook and the southern Māori in Dusky Sound had a very peaceful, amicable, warm, cooperative relationship. I think they provided each other with mutual curiosity, but there was no aggro. And this painting sort of nails that first encounter between European and Southern Māori. So it's on at uh, Te Papa. They purchased this painting and then they've put an exhibition around it. I just think it is fabulous, uplifting and positive. Well, we like that. Of course, that won't make the national media because it's positive. Yes. Uh, what about the other exhibition there? Um, how do you say Is it Zealander? Um, oh, Zealandia. Zealandia. Oh, that's, Zealandia. That, that's the big eco-sanctuary. Um, so from about... That's got a great reputation. Any good? It is incredible, yes, because it was the world's first fully fenced urban eco-sanctuary. So it's oh. only about 10 minutes from Lambton Quay. 10 minutes from Lambton Quay, and you can be watching Kiwi roam right past you at night. That's cool. That is so cool, isn't it? You can hear the call of the moorpork at night. And I've 
actually become quite a bit of a twitcher, I have to say. I've become besotted with birds in recent years, native birds. So every time I go to Wellington, I tend to find myself at Zealandia. So I've done the daytime tours and the twilight tours. And yes, the last time I was there, I did the nighttime tour, which is the one you want to do if you want to see a lot of Kiwi. And then, of course, you hear the calls, like that piercing call of the Kiwi singing out to their partner across the valley. It's just the most extraordinary thing. But 10 minutes from the CBD, it's remarkable. Okay, I must give it a go. Now, tell me about the good food and the green, uh, and the, the drink that's there as well. All right, here are a few tips for you, Chris, for your Wellington weekender. You Thank need to you. go down to Hannah's Laneway and go to a shop. It's only been there a while called Lashings. 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 Yes. And you can get lashings of true brownies. Wellingtonians go gaga over these things. These are single-origin chocolate brownies made from locally produced Chocolate. They are the taste of heaven. Um, also, just across the way in Lombard Street, it's like another little slinky alleyway, there is this very funky urban gin distillery there. It's only been going about 18 months, but it's like a shopfront gin distillery. So the gin's made on site, it's sold on site, you can do tastings, you can have a cheeky cocktail. But the really funny thing about it is the name of it is Denzian, right? And um, they've scooped up so many awards because their gin is so good. The name Denzian was actually a typo. It was meant to be Denizen, uh, meaning sort of dweller. And then when the name was sent off to do a bit of branding artwork, there was a typo made and they changed it to Denzian. And Mark Holton, the co-owner, was telling me that they looked at it thinking, well, I wonder what Denzian means. And they looked it up and Denzian is actually a Nordic word meaning a clan of people who enjoy the finer things in life. It was perfect Ooh, for the Very agenda. nice. Yeah. Very nice. Um, you also need to go to the beehive to eat. <laughs> you can actually eat inside the beehive. Yes. I reckon I, I stand I to be corrected that. here, but I reckon this could be unique because Bellamy's over the years traditionally was like the members' dining area, right, yeah. in the beehive. They've opened it up to the public. And Logan Brown, big restaurant name in Wellington, they've taken it over. So it's now called Bellamy's by Logan Brown. So as long as you book ahead, you can go into the halls of power, rub shoulders with cabinet ministers and dine at Bellamy's by Logan Brown. The food is sensational um, and I think it is unique. I do not know of any other parliament in the world where you can dine within the halls of power. No, I don't either. Okay, I might give it a go. Could you probably see some, some famous MPs, I suppose? Well, David Parker was sitting right behind me, actually, and he was having a very robust discussion about freshwater management. Riveting. <laughs> Riveting. I think I'll pass on that one, though. <laughs> well, I uh, munched on my beef cheek. <laughs> right. <laughs> by, okay. the way, yes. by the way, one last tip. Trending in Wellington is a place in Cuba Street called High Water Eatery, and I went there with a mate who said, you've got to try their duck and prune hot dog. Now, the idea of duck and prune neither really would be a start of a 10 for me, normally, right? But, oh, my God, this hot dog was extraordinary. A duck and brune hot dog with gentleman's relish, crispy shallots, and fermented cabbage powder. I still dream about that, Chris. And you, Mr Lynch, need to get to Wellington, to high-water eatery, to have one of those hot dogs. 
Thank you. Who knows? Maybe I will. Uh, look, that's a, that's our show. We need to cut it there. <laughs> Be sure to like us on our Facebook page. Our show notes are available on the website at kiwitripsters.co.nz. Give us a rating if you like. Review us on Kiwi Tripsters and the podcast service of your choice. Indeed. And we will catch you in a couple of weeks' time for a special, exclusive episode all about Chris and my hometown, Christchurch, the Garden City. We'll see you then. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels.